0: Yay, Nay, or podcast. Welcome to the first Yay, Nay, or Me podcast of 2024, covering the films released cinematically over the Christmas and New Year period. And this was a longer hiatus than I was planning, but you know how it is at Christmas, everything gets busy. I was also focused on my YouTube channel, trying to get my charmed TV reactions online, despite the draconian copyright protections of CBS. And also doing a reaction video to Cassandra, which I'm still working on because that keeps on getting knocked back by copyright as well. So yes, I've been doing a lot of video work and a lot of Oscar-baity stuff coming up with making sure I'm up to date with everything I need to watch for the Oscar races. So it ended up being a lot longer than I was anticipating. When I last recorded before Christmas, so I have a grand total of six cinematic films for you in this particular episode. Most of which are some level of Oscar baity. We have Taika Waititi's feel-good sports movie. Next goal wins. The prestige biopic by Michael Mann, who I basically thought was retired. Ferrari. Sophia Coppola's new film Priscilla. The heartwarming and, well, heart-wrenching, I suppose, British drama One Life. The exciting new film from the supposedly retired Hayao Miyazaki, The Boy and the Heron. And just because every episode needs a superhero movie, basically, we also have Aquaman and The Lost Kingdom. So, plenty to get to in this particular episode, and without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Cinema Reviews Next Goal Wins is the latest film from Taika Waititi. Who in the past, has brought us such films as The Hunt for the Wilder People and Jojo Rabbit. And this is a feature film script written alongside Ian Morris, who is the co creator of The In Betweeners TV show. It is a narrative feature retelling of the 2014 documentary, also called Next Goal Wins. Which followed the story of a maverick US based Dutch soccer coach named Thomas Rongen, who was sent to American Samoa to be the new head coach of the worst international soccer team on the planet. In 2001, American Samoa was beaten by Australia 31-0. And in 2011, they were still rock bottom of the FIFA rankings. But tired of this situation, the head of the Football Federation of American Samoa asked the US Federation for help because American Samoa is a U.S. Territory, and the U.S. Federation sent Thomas Rongen, who was a recognized coach in MLS. He was a player in the United States, playing alongside people like Johan Cruyff and George Best in the NASL in the late 70s. He was also named Coach of the Year in the MLS's inaugural season. But by 2011 his career had somewhat stalled so he was sent to American Samoa where he had about a month to try and prepare the American Samoan football team for the qualification tournament for the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. And a documentary crew was there to follow him.
1: And... It's a
0: really, really good documentary. I mean, I strongly recommend the documentary, Next Goal Wins, with colourful characters, including Thomas Rongen himself. The fact that the goalkeeper who let in those 31 goals, Nicky Salapu, is still haunted by the fact he is, you know, the worst international goalkeeper in the world. And even 10 years later, he still hasn't got over it and has to be encouraged and coaxed back to play for the national team also on the team is essentially a transgender player Jaya Salua is a fafafene which in Samoan culture is kind of the third gender and her teammates aren't phased by this at all. It's just part of their culture that one of their teammates dresses as a woman and lives as a woman 24-7. So basically their star central defender is trans and their best outfield player has to be persuaded to come out of retirement and use his holiday from the US military in order to play for American Samoa, which he does in the documentary, although he's not part of the narrative feature, which honestly is a little bit of a lack. But yes, the documentary is very, very good. So when I heard that Taika Waititi was doing a narrative feature of this, I was a little bit confused because I was thinking, hang on a minute, how can you make that into a feature film? It's already a really, really strong documentary already. Why would you want to do that? And, yeah, Taika Waititi did it, but this film has essentially been on the shelf for four years because it was shot at the end of 2019. And for the last few years, everybody in the Oscar punditry community has been saying, oh, yes, let's add Next Girl Wins to the list. Next Girl Wins will come out. That'll be a potential Oscar contender. And it's finally coming out at the end of 2023. Now, one of the reasons for this is that in 2019, one of the secondary characters in this film was being played by Army Hammer. And then the incredibly distasteful accusations about Army Hammer came out, so he had to be edited out on the movie, and his scenes have been reshot with Will Arnett. And that's actually one of the biggest issues I have with the film, which I will be getting onto. So that was one reason why this has been on the shelf. But honestly, I think the major reason why this has been on the shelf for four years is that once Taika Waititi had finished it, the production company just didn't know what to do with it. So they've kind of limped it out into cinemas at the end of 2023 maybe it'll get some oscar attention maybe it won't yeah let's just see what happens i actually saw this at a preview screening a secret preview screening at the beginning of december 2023 it was one of those situations i pretty much knew guaranteed that it was going to be next colwyn's in this screen unseen secret preview screening I also had an opportunity to watch it at the Film Bath Festival as well, because they've started doing a secret screening of an upcoming film as well, and they had enough clues on the website for the Film Bath Festival that I basically figured out it was Next Girl Wins, but by the time I sidled up to the little table I had in the lobby of the Odeon Cinema, they'd sold out, so even though I knew it was Next Girl Wins, I... Missed the opportunity to see it there, but yes, I did see it. And in this narrative feature film, Michael Fassbender plays this maverick Dutch coach, Thomas Rongen. Even though if he does have an accent, it's more close to Michael Fassbender's natural Irish accent, and he's only ever described as being European, which I think is telling, but yes. Thomas Rongan is played by Michael Fussbender. His wife, or in the narrative feature, his ex-wife, and again, I'll be getting back to that, is being played by Elizabeth Moss, and the head of the US Football Federation is being played by Will Arnett. And on Samoa, the head of the Football Federation of America Samoa is being played by Oscar Tightly. His son and national team player, is being played by Beulah Koale, who is apparently on Hawaii Five O nowadays, although I recognise him from the very strange independent film Duel. And the mother of this house is Rachel House, the awesome Kiwi actress, who has the biggest balls in that family. The trans player Jaya is being played by Kaimana, and Niki Salapu, the worst goalkeeper in international football history, is being played by Uli Latufkefu. So will this maverick and alcoholic in the movie coach whip this ragtag bunch of losers into shape in order to qualify for the 2014 World Cup? It can be a very big problem when you are watching a narrative feature and you are very, very familiar with the original story. And that's basically what's happened here for me personally. The very, very first thing you see on screen in this narrative feature, Next Girl Wins, is Taika Waititi himself with a comedy grey handlebar moustache and some comedy false teeth, and dressed in religious robes, dressed as a priest, saying that, you know, you are about to see a story about American Samoa and all the things that are very important to it. And he mentions religion many, many times in this list of things. It's that comedy thing of saying the same thing in the list multiple times. and. That is definitely a part of the documentary. Next Girl Wins is the religious aspect. They are very, very religious in American Samoa. So Taika Waititi making that point is a good starting point. But also in this little speech, he says something along the lines of, this is basically a true story, but we've wildly exaggerated it. And Boy, is that the truth. They have exaggerated and twisted so many things in this film that it's not that close to the actual story at all. And when there is a recognised documentary out there telling their story, then... Twisting things and shifting things so much is not a good thing, in my opinion. I mean, as I said, in the film, Thomas Rangan is an alcoholic, which he wasn't. He is separated from his wife, Elizabeth Moss, which he isn't, to the best of my knowledge. Thomas Rangan is still married to his wife. But in the film, Elizabeth Moss is not only separated from Michael Fassbender... She's also shagging Will Arnett, who is playing the U.S. Federation president. There's a threat towards the end of the film that Will Arnett, as the president of the American Federation, is somehow able to decertify American Samoa as a member of FIFA. If you don't win this game, the... American Samoan soccer team will cease to exist. And nobody can do that. That's just villain stuff in a movie. The relationship between Thomas Rongen and this trans player, Jaya, in the film is portrayed as very adversarial towards the beginning, but in real life, Thomas Rongen and Jaya Sailua were okay with each other right from the start and actually interestingly the real jaya silua is used as a stunt extra in the football scenes she was used as an actual soccer player in the soccer games which I thought was right quite nice so the real life person essentially playing herself in certain situations But I think
1: quite apart from these differences that the narrative feature has put in
0: to this film, the major issue I have with it is how patronising this film is. I mean, Taika Waititi does have Maori heritage. He is of Polynesian Extraction. Yet, in my opinion, he has made a very patronising film, which puts the American Samoan people, not just the soccer team, but the people of American Samoa, as things to be laughed at and pointed at. And sometimes, I mean, there there's things you can live with, like. The first international soccer game we see before Thomas Rongen shows up, before Michael Fassbender shows up, the American Samoan soccer team has the least coordinated haka you've ever seen. You know that war dance that the All Blacks rugby team does before every match, and it happens in other countries. I mean, the Samoan rugby team does their own version. The Tongan rugby team does their own version. And they also apparently do it in soccer games. But the first time they do it, it's the least coordinated hacker you have ever, ever seen. And that's, it is okay as far as I'm concerned. But there's other stuff which is just offensive, in my opinion. Like Michael Fassbender gets off the plane and immediately he has a microphone shoved in his face because he's interviewed for a television show called Who's on the Plane. You know, American Samoa is such a small country that it's interesting who's actually coming there at all. And it turns out that the cameraman for this is the president of the Soccer Association, and he just says, oh yeah, everybody's got several jobs on the island. When Michael Fassbender gets to the training session, I mean, a lot or a significant portion of the players are very, very large people. Which is a trait of Polynesian islands. I mean, there's a line which is pretty close to accurate that the president of the federation, Oscar Keitley, says that the two biggest exports of American Samoa are tuna and NFL players. Because Polynesians do tend to get very, very large. But not on the soccer team. The real-life soccer team didn't have anybody nearly as, as big as the people on this team. So you're just making stereotypes about South Sea Islanders. And repeatedly throughout the course of this film, you have this thing that everybody has multiple jobs. So you just see people, oh, you're one of my team and you're doing this. Like he sits down at the restaurant and Jaya is the waitress. When he eventually finds Nikki Salapu and tries to persuade him out of retirement, he's stocking shelves at the convenient store. All of these things, I mean, it's making a joke of the fact oh, isn't this such a tiny place? Isn't this so quaint? And honestly, I mean, I'm not Polynesian in any way shape or form but i did think it was a bit offensive and i think they did lay it on a bit thick and i also think they laid on the redemption arc a bit thick as well because the real thomas Rongen wasn't an alcoholic he did have some emotional traumas to deal with which i'm not going to go into because they are in this narrative feature as well There was a reason why a a couple of months in this remote, calm place was good for Thomas Rongen at that point, but he wasn't an alcoholic, he didn't have anger issues. But here he does, and in this environment, which is very, very religious, there's a scene which amounts to a baptism for Thomas Rongen for the character played by Michael Fassbender, which I think is pushing things a little bit too far, maybe. And exaggerating things is basically what Taika Waititi has done. But I think he's exaggerating so much that it ends up being a parody and not all that entertaining. I also think the film's quite rushed. There is a sequence which is almost a montage where Thomas Rongan is going around the island saying to all these people, look, I know you're sick of losing, but would you mind coming back? I mean, Nikki Salopu is the most obvious one. But there are other people as well who come back to the team. And that's actually a, a strong part of the... Documentary next girl wins is Thomas Rongen trying to find anybody in the world who might qualify for American Samoa, and he actually finds a couple, which is cool. And yeah, I think he he was good at that because at one point Thomas Rongen was head scout for the U.S. national men's team. Right now he is the color commentator for Inter Miami, the team that Lionel Messi plays for. So he's loving life at the moment. But yeah, one of the parts of the documentary is you know, basically phoning up people all over the world saying, hey, you qualify for American Samoa. do you want to come and play? And there's something along those lines in the narrative feature, Next Girl Wins, but he only goes around the island and trying to persuade people to come back. Which is fine, but it does feel a little bit rushed. I think the nuts-and-bolts narrative of actually training a team, having these bunch of amateurs, I mean, literally they are a bunch of amateurs, and getting them fit enough and tactically aware enough to actually compete in World Cup qualifiers, albeit against similarly tiny countries like Samoa and Tonga, and Tahiti, and all these kinds of places. But this Dutch guy or Dutch American guy going to American Samoa and getting a dose of Samoan culture and finding a new lease on life I mean, that is part of the documentary, but that's all that we have in the narrative feature. We are focused so much on the emotional journey of Michael Fassbender. Not being an alcoholic anymore, dealing with his baggage, his emotional traumas, dealing with his ex-wife, which is not a thing. That's the thing that pisses me off the most in this narrative feature: is that Michael Fassbender and Elizabeth Moss aren't married to each other, and effectively Elizabeth Moss is on the panel of the team that fires Thomas Rongen at the beginning, and that scene where Michael Fassbender is. Fired does have one of the funnier moments in the film. I mean, it's a pretty standard joke, but it works. Reese Darby, who of course is in this film because it's a Taika Waititi film, he doesn't fit in this narrative feature, but Reese Darby's in this. And anyway, Reese Darby says, Yes, I know you've just been fired. Let's go through the five stages of grief. And within like a, a five minute scene, Michael Fassbender demonstrates the five stages of grief. Which is a standard joke, but it's still a pretty funny joke. And that's kind of what this film is. It's every underdog sports movie cliche you've ever seen. A little bit rushed through, focusing a little bit too much on the personal developments of Michael Fassbender and not enough on the actual team. And I think it's kind of patronising. I think it's poking fun at... The Polynesian mindset and Polynesian culture, and not necessarily embracing it or not embracing it enough in my opinion, so yeah watch the documentary I mean, I urge you to watch the twenty fourteen documentary next girl wins that is an outstanding sports documentary. I love it to pieces. This narrative feature. Not so much. I hate the way that they exaggerated it so much. and I think it's kind of patronizing, so yeah, there's good moments in it. I like the representation of having a trans actress play you know, the trans soccer player JSI Lua. I don't think it's a title wash, but it's a very, very.
1: Lo, ma.
0: Ferrari is the latest film from Michael Mann, who has a long and pretty distinguished career. Most of his filmography is made up of high-quality crime movies. He first came to fame as the executive producer of the TV show Miami Vice in the 80s, which for good and or ill changed the face of how television was made. Then he made some pretty well-respected crime movies in the 80s with Thief and Manhunter, the first appearance on screen of Hannibal Lecter brilliantly played by Brian Cox. In the 90s, he moved on to prestige action movies with The Last of the Mohicans and Heat. In the late 90s into the 2000s, he said, God damn it, I want an Oscar. So he made The Insider, which got him Golden Globe and Oscar nominations for both directing and writing, and also a Best Picture nomination at the Oscars didn't win anything, and he also then made Ali and Collateral, which is not an out-and-out Oscar bait film, but it is very, very cool. He then did a film version of Miami Vice in 2006, but since then has kind of semi-retired. In the last 10 years, the only film he's done before this was Black Hat which wasn't at all well-received. But yes, he is now back with this film, Ferrari, a biopic of Enzo Ferrari, which apparently has been a passion project of Michael Mann's for quite some time. Apparently, he wanted to make this film back in 1993 as his follow-up to Last of the Mohicans, starring Robert De Niro but it's taken him this long to actually get it off the ground. And even then, the original person who was supposed to be in it, Christian Bale, pulled out, so Adam Driver was called in as a somewhat last-minute replacement. And Adam Driver does play Enzo Ferrari in the pivotal year in the history of the Ferrari company and Enzo Ferrari personally, 1957 because everything is going on at once. His company, the Ferrari company which he owns alongside his wife Laura, as played by Penelope Cruz, is on the verge of bankruptcy, because he's such a perfectionist, he's not making enough cars to actually pay the bills. He needs to be making about 150 cars a year. He's actually making 98. And the debts are starting to mount. He's also got personal problems with his wife, Penelope Cruz. They're still living in the same house, but they've long ago stopped caring about each other and are actually quite vicious towards each other. Largely, it seems, because the year previously, their son died, and this marriage did not survive the death of their son. And other issues arise, because Enzo Ferrari does have a long-term mistress, Shailene Woodley, who he's got in a house out in the... Hills of Media romagna and he has a 10-year-old son with Shailene Woodley, and everybody in moderna knows what's going on except his wife Penelope Cruz. Everything is going on at the same time, both personally and professionally. And essentially, in order to save his company, in order to get the publicity he needs to sell enough cars to keep afloat, and potentially get some outside investment from either the Fiat company in Italy or the Ford company in America. So this is basically the same plot points as Ford versus Ferrari, which takes place about 10 years later than this. but. He needs to attract outside investment to keep his company in business, and in order to do that, he needs to win the very prestigious, but very dangerous race, the Mille Milia, the thousand miles. Sports cars travelling through the country roads in the middle of Italy between Rome and Brescia kind of a mix between a sports car race and a rally, but yes, Ferrari needs to win this race, and he has several drivers potentially able to do that. The new young hotshot played by Gabriel Leone, the steady pair of hands who's never quite won the big one, Patrick Dempsey, and the wunderkind who is touted as a future F1 world champion, Jack O'Connell. So, can Ferrari win the Mille Emilia? Can he keep his company afloat? And can he keep his love child away from his very cynical, very bitter
1: Why? So this film does some really, really interesting things. I think what Michael Mann is doing with this film, alongside his
0: screenwriter Troy Kennedy Martin, who back in the day wrote The Italian Job, Oh, and actually died in 2009. So, yes, this film has been in development now for quite some time. But anyway, what Michael Mann and Troy Kennedy Martin are trying to do with this film is confound expectations. There are certain formulas which you see over and over and over again in films, which is why. Film producers say, hey, why don't we just get AI to do it? You know, which is a terrible idea, but anyway, you see patterns repeated over and over and over again. And I think what Michael Mann is trying to do here is present those ideas and then start to subvert them. Because this film starts out as a pretty straightforward biopic of Enzo Ferrari. Yeah, we very quickly get the personal life of Enzo Ferrari because we see him waking up in a bed. It's very early in the morning. He sneaks out of the room and makes sure he doesn't wake up his partner, looks in on his 10-year-old son, and then drives off back to the city of Modena from the country then sneaks back into his own house because, oh no, he's woken up in the bed of his mistress Shailene Woodley. And when he gets home to Penelope Cruz, she naturally is not very happy about this and actually pulls a gun and fires a gun at Adam Driver. You know, that fiery Latin temperament. Yeah, I mean, we quickly have everything established in the personal life and then we also then have the stuff about his finance guy saying, look, we're about to go bankrupt. You can't spend all this money on the racing team, a racing team which, by the way, isn't winning at the moment, and only manufacture 98 cars a year. That's not enough. I mean, look, Jaguars just what got one, two, three at the Le Mans. So what are we doing here? And Adam Driver replies, Jaguar races to sell cars. I sell cars in order to race. I mean, he is a racer. He has a background as a racer, which we see in some honestly very poorly put together black and white footage at the opening of the film. I mean, the film opens with some classic motor racing action and Adam Driver's been not very elegantly put into this black-and-white footage as Enzo Ferrari the racer. Yeah, I mean, he has that mentality of the racer. But it is starting to bankrupt his company. A company which, by the way, Penelope Cruz basically does the day-to-day admin for. I mean, she has the payroll, she does all the actual work, while the genius just dreams about racing. And then also early in the film, we have a scene where one of Enzo Ferrari's test drivers crashes and dies, which we see on screen. And yeah, I mean, that's the first of many really high-octane driving scenes in this film. So we have it set up that this is a very, very dangerous thing to do. There's a very high probability that these drivers are going to die, and they accept it. Uh, And there's a lengthy speech which Enzo Ferrari, Adam Driver, gives in the middle of this film, which we see a bit of in the trailer, saying, we are drivers, we are racers, this is what we do. You have to be willing to push yourself to the limit and beyond the limit. If you break a second or a fraction of a second later than your rival, you will win. And yes, if neither of us breaks, both of us are going to die, but you accept that because you want to win. I mean, he describes it as a terrible joy of racing because you are always on that knife edge between life and death, between winning and not winning. And as far as Adam Driver is concerned, and he's trying to instil that in his drivers, like Gabriel Leone and Jack O'Connell and Patrick Dempsey, be willing to die, because there's every chance he will die, but be willing to die in order to win. That's all he cares about. And, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting character study as well. So, yeah, all of that biopic stuff is in there. But gradually it starts to turn into a sports movie with, you know, Gabrielle Leone playing this young hotshot, you know, the next big thing, where this guy's coming in from Spain. He gets off the train at Modena and just walks up to Enzo Ferrari, who's at a traffic light, and says, Hello, I'd like to drive for you. And he does have a background. I mean, far he knows who he is. He knows the name. But eventually, Gabriel only gets the drive because the other guy died on the test track. So, yeah, you start to see the sports movie tropes, you know, the underdog, the plucky, brash newcomer coming in and shaking things up. And, you know, we're focusing so clearly on him. I mean, oh, yeah, he's going to win the race. And you start to see the patterns and you start to see things. Oh, yeah, that'll become relevant later. Like they make a very specific point of in this mille, mille race, this thousand mile race. You have to have a little card with you, which needs to get signed at each checkpoint. And they make very, very sure that you see this card and you see that this is what they need to do. So I think, oh, that's going to become relevant later. Somebody's going to forget to do that. But actually, they don't. And this is where the interesting stuff comes in, because while there are certainly tropes of the sports movie and the formula, even, of the sports movie, it really doesn't end up in the places you expect and you know that there is no relevance to those little cards we just have that moment put in there because that's the kind of thing which happens in a sports movie the mentor type relationship that patrick dempsey has with gabriel leone doesn't quite play out the way you expect even though that's what's Kind of being set up with this. Uh, and yes, I mean, there's some uh, unusual choices made in the end of this film, which, yeah, actually completely wrong footed me. And I do kind of appreciate it because being surprised in a film is something which is getting increasingly rare because you spot the patterns because you spot the formula think oh that's going to happen that's going to happen that's been made a point of we've got a very clear shot of that little thing so that's going to come back we kind of know what's going to happen so when it doesn't happen in that way it's a surprise and yes it is unusual so yeah i mean it it turns into a different kind of film altogether by the end. And, yeah, it's a biopic, then it's a sports movie, and then it subverts the sports movie genres by completely changing what you anticipate happening. So, yeah, it's an unusual film in that way, and I do kind of appreciate it. You can tell that Michael Mann was really into this. I mean, you can tell this has been a passion project for him because the car racing scenes, the motor racing scenes are really, really well done. I mean, the motor racing scenes are exceptional in this. You really feel the adrenaline. You feel the speed. You feel the tension, you know. Oh, that guy's coming up on the inside, is he going to break no oh no, he's braked too early and the other guy's gonna win, you know, that kind of thing. And also, you know, seeing these really fast vintage sports cars going down these winding Italian roads. I mean, I'm a fan of professional cycling, so it really reminded me of watching the Giro d'Italia. Only I mean, instead of bicycles, it's vintage sports cars. And yeah, it's all really, really well done. With one exception, there's a pivotal scene, I mean, which I think is unquestionably the pivotal scene in the entire film, which through necessity had to be done with CGI. And it has to be said, some of that CGI is a little bit ropey. It doesn't look all that good. I really think you, you could have spent a little bit more time and money on that particular scene because some of that just doesn't look right. And as I said, by necessity, you have to do that scene in CGI. So I think maybe it needed to be better, but it still has you know the visceral impacts that it needs. It's just, oh yeah, that's not right. That's definitely computer generated. So, I mean, that's a little bit of an issue. But, yeah, it's a fascinating film which does manage to subvert your expectations and I think does it really well. I think Adam Driver is good as this very driven, very single-minded man. I, I think this, amongst many other things, works as a film about male entitlement. Because Enzo Ferrari wants everything exactly the way he wants it. He wants his company run exactly the way he wants it. You know, I need to race. We need a sports team. As he says, we sell cars in order to race. And he has this fatalism that, yes, we're almost certainly going to die, but we do it anyway. Uh, and that single minded dedication to that. I mean, he, so he wants everything exactly as he wants it in his professional life and in his personal life. He wants everything you know, in their neat little boxes, everything completely compartmentalised. I'm going to spend all my time in this little house in the country with Shailene Woodley and my 10 year old son, and my wife, Penelope Cruz, doesn't know about it at all and never will know about it. Until inevitably she does. And I also think Penelope Cruz is excellent in this film. I mean, she is among the strong contenders for supporting actress this year, and I totally see it. I mean, she is very, very good as Laura Ferrari, this bitter, cynical woman who is devastated by the death of her son. Which was the final nail in the coffin for her marriage to Adam Driver. It seems like they weren't on perfect terms even before their son got sick, but once he got sick and died, there's just nothing there anymore. But they're still married. I mean, this is 1957 in very Catholic Italy, you know, which it, it, there's actually a rather interesting scene where a Catholic priest essentially compares Jesus the carpenter to you know this town of Modena which is completely based around manufacturing cars and manufacturing other things so yes the steel of our cars is the same as the wood of our carpenter Jesus so yeah that was curious but the marriage between Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz must stay i mean you know divorce is just not on the cards so they stay in the same house they live in the same house and they basically hate each other and as i said in a scene which is more or less the first scene for penelope cruz she fires a gun at him uh, you know, it's that kind of relationship but you see the bitterness you see the pain you see the cynicism of penelope cruz and, you know, the, the blaming Adam Driver for the death of their son, which is completely irrational. He had kidney disease and died. But, you know, Adam Driver promised to save his son, you know, fix his son. I'm going to spend all, all this money on doctors all over the world, in Italy and Switzerland. You know, I'm an engineer. I'm going to learn everything I can about this disease. and I'm going to fix our son. And obviously he didn't manage to do it because he's an engineer, he's not a doctor. And despite this being completely, completely irrational, Penelope Cruz blames Adam Driver for the death of their son. Uh, and it, it, there's just nothing there anymore. So naturally he goes off to Shady Woodley and, and leaves Penelope Cruz a bitter, cynical, angry woman but a woman that Adam Driver still needs to live with because she owns half the company. Because when it looked like the Nazis would take him away during the Second World War, Enzo Ferrari signed over half the company to Laura to keep it out of the hands of malign influences. So, particularly when the goal is to get outside investment from either Fiat or Ford or somebody else, he needs his wife because he needs her shares. So yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff going on there. And yeah, I think Penelope Cruz is excellent playing this bitter, cynical, grieving woman. Adam Driver is good as this completely single-minded, completely focused man, Enzo Ferrari and the car racing scenes are fantastically well-achieved, with that one exception of some ropey CGI in the pivotal scene. But,
1: yeah, this is a really good film.
0: It's got everything you would want from a sports movie, from an action movie. And it's got some really good acting in it as well. So yeah, I think this is a really entertaining, really solid film. I don't think it's going to be a really, really strong Oscar contender apart from potentially Penelope Cruz, but it is a good film and I do recommend it. So for me, Ferrari, which is available in cinemas now, but this has been listed as a Sky original. So Within a few weeks or months, it should be showing up on Sky Cinema as well, but for me, it was a high-octane, well-acted meh. Priscilla is the latest film written and directed by Sofia Coppola, who after a notorious attempt at acting in her father's film, the Godfather Part Three has turned herself into a highly acclaimed and award-winning director. She was the first woman to be Oscar-nominated as a producer, writer, and director of the same film, for Lost in Translation, and she won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, She's also got a Golden Lion at Venice to her name for Somewhere, and also a Best Director award at Cannes for The Beguiled. So, has prestige and talent of her own, despite her very, very famous family name. And for her latest project, she is... Adapting the autobiography of Priscilla Presley, co-written with the ghostwriter Sandra Harmon, but Sophia Coppola takes Priscilla Presley's life and shows the other side of the coin following the extravagant and bombastic Elvis from Buzz Lerman last year. In this film, Kaylee Spaney plays... Priscilla, who initially meets Elvis Presley, as played by Jacob Elordi, when she is 15 years old, living on a military base in West Germany in 1959. As Elvis is doing his military service, which got him out of hot water for gyrating too much on stage, essentially, But Elvis is already enormously famous, enormously popular, and he's on this military base in West Germany, and he wants uh, an American girl to hang out with, and he chooses the 15-year-old Priscilla Beaulieu. And eventually, young Priscilla moves into Graceland and becomes a live-in girlfriend, and eventually... They actually get married and eventually they actually have a child together. But the pressures of fame, the Memphis Mafia hanging around constantly with Elvis, you know, all his hangers on, his family members, his entourage basically, they were known as the Memphis Mafia. Elvis spends all his time with them. And Priscilla is trapped doing absolutely nothing. And then of course there's all the pills that Elvis is taking, and eventually the pills that he gives to Priscilla. And as Elvis's career develops and he ends up with that years-long residency in Vegas... The pills start taking over and eventually Priscilla must leave. And it's rather interesting that Lisa Marie Presley read a script of this film Priscilla and instantly came out against it. She publicly stated that she did not recognise her father in this film, saying he was portrayed as an abusive asshole and she would not support this film, would do everything to bring down this film. Unfortunately, Lisa Marie Presley then died not that long after those statements. But this is based on Priscilla Presley's autobiography. So, yeah, Lisa Marie might not like it, but I think this is how her mother perceived her marriage. And it's also significant that the Elvis Presley estate did not allow any of Elvis's music to be used in this film. And quite honestly, you don't feel the lack. I mean, there's only one scene where it would be actually relevant to hear an Elvis song as Elvis and Priscilla and all his entourage, the Memphis Mafia, are watching the comeback special on the TV in Graceland. And then... You might wanted to have heard an Elvis song, but other than that, I think Sophia Coppola works really neatly around not having access to Elvis's music, and you really don't feel the lack. So yes, good job on that
1: front. So
0: I'm going to start this review in a rather unusual place because I think. This film Priscilla fits so perfectly into the filmography of Sofia Coppola, I'm actually going to explore Sofia Coppola's filmography film by film, because there's not all that many films, and they've got an awful lot of thematic connection, of which this is a peak example. Sophia Coppola tends to work in what has been dubbed the sad girl genre. She tends to make films about women who are incredibly bored and trapped in cages. Quite often gilded cages, but cages nonetheless. You have Kirsten Dunst and her sisters. Trapped in a suburban house with overprotective parents in The Virgin Suicides. You have Scarlett Johansson trapped in a Tokyo hotel in Lost in Translation. You have Kirsten Dunst trapped in Versailles in Marie Antoinette. You have Elle Fanning trapped in the Chateau Marmont with her celebrity father in Somewhere. And doesn't that sound like a psychologically rich film to have been made by the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola? But you then have Kirsten Dunst again and her classmates trapped in a girl's school in the Civil War South in The Beguiled. And the other two films in Sophie Coppola's filmography don't necessarily fit perfectly into this pattern, but. Even Emma Watson and her friends in The Bling Ring are bored. It's a very, very self-indulgent boredom, but they do what they do through boredom. And then you have the one true outlier, Sofia Coppola's last film, On the Rocks, which is not about a bored, trapped woman. Not Well, not really. I think Rashida Jones, you can arguably say, is trapped by expectation and trapped by her own insecurities, but really On the Rocks is another film about a problematic and absent father. So yes, I think somebody needs therapy. But yeah, Priscilla fits absolutely perfectly into this aesthetic of the sad girl. There are so many shots in this film which are just Kaylee Spaney, dressed perfectly, dressed beautifully, and wandering completely alone and isolated through Graceland, with absolutely nothing to do, absolutely no one to talk to. She is actively prevented from working. There's one point where she suggests, yeah, there's this boutique in memphis which says i can work after school and elvis says absolutely not there's an office in graceland where a couple of women one of whom i think might be elvis's cousin is working i mean you know answering all the fan mail getting all the administrative stuff doing and kaylee spaney is not even allowed to hang out with these women let alone actually work she is expected to be the good little homemaker at home. I mean, when Elvis is on a film set and needs to call home, she is expected to be there. And that's her only job to look pretty and to be there for Elvis. She has absolutely nothing to do and she is bored out of her fucking skull. And that's basically the aesthetic of this whole film. And it's also really interesting to see just how compartmentalised Elvis's life is. I mean, as far as the portrayal in this film goes, Jacob Elordi as Elvis is portrayed as somebody who wants a very specific thing from a woman. He wants somebody who is beautiful but also not much more than an object. I need to have a wife, and I I need to have somebody at home. I I don't want my wife working. I mean, specifically, he says about one of the many, many girlfriends that Elvis is supposed to have had over this period, Anne-Margaret, who he's shooting a film with, he says about Anne-Margaret, for her career comes first, a man comes second, and that's not what you, Priscilla, are. For you, the man comes first, and not necessarily, but that's what Elvis wants. He wants somebody whose only priority is him. Priscilla only exists as an adjunct to him, and there's a little bit of controlling behaviour even a little bit of coercive control I mean there are certain scenes where you can argue that Elvis is abusive not physically abusive i think the the worst we see on screen as far as physical abuse goes or at least there's there's one scene right towards the end which i'll get to but for the, the bulk of the film the worst thing we see Elvis do physically is throw a chair, and it just so happens that Priscilla was in that general direction. I I don't think Elvis threw a chair at Priscilla. He threw a chair which nearly hit Priscilla. So, I mean, that's the worst you see physically, but his attitude and his controlling thoughts, his controlling ideas, are very, very strong. I mean, I, I think it's significant that one of the first things that Kaylee Spaney does as she is going into labour, is put on false eyelashes. I mean, that is the kind of thing that Elvis would expect, and the public would expect. So that's what she does. And it's that kind of thing, that every aspect of her life is controlled by Elvis, And, you know, I remind you that when Priscilla met Elvis, she was 15 years old and liable for this kind of control. And because she is actively prevented from having a job, from doing anything other than just being the girlfriend and then eventual wife of Elvis, she is bored out of her mind. And that's the the thing that Sofia Coppola naturally shows us, naturally gravitates towards. And it's also really interesting seeing the intimate relationship between Priscilla and Elvis, because as it is portrayed in this film, this physical relationship took a very, very long time to be consummated, which, you know, fine... She was 15 when they started dating, so that's probably a good thing. But even after Priscilla was, you know, ready and eager to make this a physical relationship, Elvis still kept her at a distance. You know, wanted this perfect partner, not a sexual being. I mean, he had Anne Margaret and all these other girlfriends for that, but this perfect object put up on a pedestal and didn't want to sully it by getting intimate. Uh, And even after the marriage, and even after having a child together, it is portrayed that the physical relationship between Elvis and Priscilla wasn't all that common. Uh, And repeatedly throughout the course of the film, Priscilla tries to instigate sex, and Elvis turns her down. Until right near the end, in the Elvis phase, one of the final scenes of the film, and the scene that finally breaks the camel's back and Priscilla leaves him, is that a completely pill adult Elvis basically attempts to rape his wife. And that's the final straw. So he goes from Absolutely no sex, you know, keeping at a distance, I need you this perfect thing on a pedestal to come here, I'm going to physically assault you. And and yeah, that's a, a dichotomy. And it's really interesting seeing the development of this relationship because right from the start, a key factor in the relationship between these two people is pills. I mean, after one of the first dates back in, in West Germany in the military base, this 15-year-old girl is being brought home to her parents and, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be so tired in school tomorrow. And Elvis just says, oh, we'll have one of these. They give them to us for night manoeuvres. So basically, Elvis is giving speed to a 15-year-old. And there's a very pivotal scene when young priscilla who at that point i think is about 16 or 17 goes to vegas and they you know wild parties with elvis and the Memphis mafia in in las vegas and elvis is handing out the pills you know we're going to go all night here have some speed and it's a really really interesting scene where it's just a close-up of the pill bottle and all the hands held out for their latest dexedrine or whatever. And then the little hand of Kaylee Spaney comes into shot as well, and she wants a pill as well. So right from the start, she's taking speed. And going to school in Memphis, where she is rejected, oh, you're, you're the one who's sleeping with Elvis, you're you know, a slut, basically. So she isn't liked, she isn't popular in school, but she's up all night partying with the Memphis Mafia. So another repeated thing we see is she wakes up in the morning, reaches across Elvis to the nightstand and picks up his pills. So she's going to school on speed because she needs to stay awake because she's been up all night partying the previous night. So right from the start, there's Always, always pills. And there's also a, a one scene involving LSD as well, which was quite interesting. So, yeah, it, it's interesting seeing Elvis and his life through this lens of always spending time with his entourage, with his boys, just going out and having fun and partying, uh, and never fully appreciating what he has and actively discouraging his girlfriend then wife from doing anything except be the girlfriend slash wife of Elvis. And so so many scenes of Kaylee Spaney just silently wandering round this beautiful house wearing these beautiful clothes with absolutely nothing to do. In many ways I think this is the epitome of a Sophia Coppola film because this is what she does. This is the sad girl aesthetic, writ large. And when watching this film, it makes me really, really fascinated to see what Sophia Coppola would have done with Disney's The Little Mermaid, which she was attached to do for many years before they realised, hang on, this is not the right director, but Sophia Coppola doing The Little Mermaid, I think would have been Utterly fascinating, and you know the the Halle Bailey version was fine, but Sophia Coppola doing that. I think you could have had something really really special and really, really unusual, akin to Greta Gerwig's Barbie maybe, but yeah, that's one of those great what- ifs, but yes, this is Sophia Coppola writ large. this is her aesthetic down perfectly. And as such, I think this film does suffer a little bit, because in common with many of Sofia Coppola's films, I actually found this film a, a little cold, a little remote, a little distant we are standing back and observing this woman trapped in her gilded cage and bored out of her mind. We're not necessarily engaged with this character. And that is brought into sharp focus by the end of this film, which, personally speaking, I found very, very abrupt. I mean, we know the history of Elvis and Priscilla Presley. We know what's going to happen but the fact that that's the point where we just end the film, with, by the way, an awesome needle drop, the song that she chose to play over the end credits was a brilliant and a perfect choice. But having that happen and then, oh, just cut to black, I mean, I personally thought, oh, we're just ending it there, I mean, We've got to the point we know is coming, and that's as far as you want to go. You don't want to have a little bit more. I mean, after all, this is a film called Priscilla, about Priscilla, and based on her autobiography. So to limit it so strictly to Elvis and the partnership with Elvis, I think that diminishes the person in the film, and... It really did feel abrupt it did feel unnecessarily abbreviated although there is talk that sophia coppola had to change her plans when some of the financing she thought she had acquired fell through so maybe some of the stuff which had to get cut was the stuff later and maybe that's the reason the ending is so abrupt but yeah, it, I, I really did think the ending was abrupt. So that's that's an issue. And I also think it is a, a little bit remote. It, it's a little bit detached for my taste. But yeah, I mean, still nonetheless pretty good. I think the acting performances of both Kaylee Spaney as Priscilla and Jacob Elordi as Elvis are both excellent potentially even Oscar-worthy. I mean, in both categories, for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actor, there's some very, very strong competition. But, yeah, I think they deserve to be in serious consideration. And Jacob Elordi, after this, and Saltburn within the last couple of weeks, there's some really, really good stuff. I mean, I've never seen The Kissing Booth or Euphoria which are Jacob Elordi's biggest things before this. But yeah, with Priscilla and Saltburn, I think Jacob Elordi is definitely a name to look out for. And I've long been a fan of Kaylee Spaney. I mean, the first time I saw her was in Bad Times at the El Royale, and she was very, very good in that. I mean, it was one of those situations where I saw Bad Times at the El Royale, which was... An okay film. I mean, it was clearly trying to be a Tarantino film, but it was okay. But I, I saw that. And I thought, who the hell is that? She's amazing. She's going to be great. And she was. I mean, and then she went into things like The Mayor of East Town, the TV show, which was very good, and Devs. So, yeah. Katie Spaney is uh, a very talented actress. I think she won best actress somewhere yeah she won best actress at the venice film festival and she's been already nominated for a golden globe for best actress in a motion picture drama i mean it's easy to get exit nominations at the golden globe so i'll see how she does at the oscars but yeah this is a very cool film yes a little bit detached, a little bit remote, but very well acted and perfectly in keeping with Sofia Coppola's ideas and aesthetic. I, I think in many ways, this is the epitome of a Sophia Coppola film. And once you hear that, you will more than likely know what to expect. But for me, I rather liked Priscilla and It should be available in cinemas now, and before too long, it will be available on movie.com since this is a movie release. And for me, it is a pretty high
1: meh. Next up, we have One Life,
0: a very typical grey pound type of film specifically aimed i think at a very particular corner of the british film market this is a film directed by james hawes who is a very very long-standing television director often having quite prestigious television in his background and the script is co-written by lucinda Coxon who got BAFTA nominated as one of the co-writers of The Danish Girl. So some comfortable British talent behind the camera. And this is a biopic of Sir Nicholas Winton, and is based on the biography of Nicholas Winton by his daughter Barbara Winton. And I'm not sure how many people have seen this, but it crops up periodically. But there's a clip that sometimes goes around online from the early '80s, and that's Life, the Esther Ranson television show, which I think the modern equivalent is basically the one show for those in the UK. But that's Life was enormously popular in the early '80s, and there's one particular clip which gets Shared around online at various intervals. Talking about a scrapbook that Sir Nicholas Winton had, where he was involved in Prague just before the Second World War and was one of the instigators of the kinder transport out of Czechoslovakia. Helping children, overwhelmingly Jewish children, Escape the Nazis just before the war. And Esther Ranson had this scrapbook and pointed out Nicholas Winton in the crowd and then said, Would anybody who owes their life to Nicholas Winton, who is here today, please stand up? And everybody in the crowd stands up. And it's incredibly moving, incredibly powerful stuff. This man, Sir Nicholas Winton, helped. So many children survive the war. And that moment was the inspiration, I think, for creating this film version, which stars Sir Anthony Hopkins as the older Nicholas Winton, who is a very stoic, very close-lipped, very modest man who says, "Yeah, well, I just needed, I did what needed to be done. I mean, anybody else would have done it, and you know, the whole point is that not many people did it. Nobody did it. He did it. But he—he's very quiet, very modest. But with the imminent arrival of a grandchild, I think his first grandchild, he's clearing out some old material, including all this." stuff from the second world war and so he finds this scrapbook and says right something needs to be done with this and eventually it ends up on that's life thanks to robert maxwell of all people who was czech so i think he managed to get it into the hands of the bbc and you know the sunday mirror did uh, an article about this about nicholas winton and the czech transport. But Anthony Hopkins is just going about his business and in flashback we see the things he actually did in Czechoslovakia and in London. I mean, getting visas for all these children, fundraising to get the money for all these children because the British government insisted on monetary guarantees for these children and many of the foster families just couldn't afford it so they needed fundraising and that's what Nicholas Winton did and Nicholas Winton in the second world war is being played by Johnny Flynn who goes to prague just before the second world war breaks out in order to help these refugees with the assistance of other Brits in Prague, Romola Garai and Alex Sharp. And back in London, Johnny Flynn's mother is being played by Helena Bonham Carter, who is a take-no-nonsense force of nature who helps enormously with the whole bullying British government and fundraising the necessary funds. So, Johnny Flynn in the Second World War does everything he can to get as many children as possible out of Prague and in the present day, which is the early 80s, Anthony Hopkins looks back on his life and starts to wonder what actually happened to all those children he saved. The 669 children he managed to get out of Prague before the Nazis got in. And, yeah, it's a remarkable story. And that clip from That's Life, I do go and look it up on YouTube because it's a remarkable thing. And, yeah, a very understandable motive for making this kind of film. And One Life is that kind of film that... You have the basic premise of Old Man played by Oscar-winning actor, and Sir Anthony Hopkins is actually on the shortlist for BAFTA nomination as Best Supporting Actor this year, which I think is a little bit of category fraud, because he is basically the protagonist. I mean, yes, the majority of the film is these flashbacks in Prague and the Second World War, but Anthony Hopkins is the lead of the film, and yet he's a supporting actor. But anyway, this is the kind of film that that happens with. I mean, you have a respected actor in Anthony Hopkins bringing people into the crowd, and to a certain degree, Helena Bonham Carter. You also have Sir Jonathan Price in one scene, which is cool. But it is a... Story that lends itself to a particular type of film and this is that film and there's nothing wrong with that but you hear what this film is and you get exactly what you expect you get harrowing scenes of these predominantly jewish refugees in prague you get the paperwork the bureaucracy needed to get these children out of Prague, and as Johnny Flynn shows up in Prague, Romola Garai and Alex Sharp tell him, oh, you're a stockbroker, you know your way around a desk, you can do all the paperwork, and that's what he ends up doing, both in Prague and in London. So, to some degree, large chunks of this film are paperwork and bureaucracy as drama, which can work. I mean, it worked remarkably well in Spotlight, and to some degree it works well here, but there are some actual dangerous moments in there. I mean, there are Nazis on the streets of Prague by the end of this film, and some of the nail-biting stuff of getting these children out is genuinely
1: a tense moment.
0: But the centre of this film is Anthony Hopkins, who is a stockbroker, but also a lifelong charity worker. I mean, in the opening scene, we see him coming in with about a dozen collection tins for the NSPCC. And brief tangent, can we just acknowledge for the moment that... We have the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, but the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. It's the animals who get the royal stamp of approval, but not protecting children. I mean, they do say that the Brits love their pets more than their fellow human beings, but anyway. He is a collector for the NSPCC, an organiser for the NSPCC, and as he's sorting out all the coins he's collected from these tins, he's hearing on the radio a couple of things. Firstly, it's a week after Black Monday, and as a stockbroker, he dismissively says, Well, that's what happens when you deregulate. But he also hears stories about Tamil refugees who are being abused in southern England, and that is one of the things which sparks him you know, reminiscing about his time in Prague. So instantly you have a picture of this man, you know, a quiet, simple man who does dedicate his life, dedicate what remains of his retirement to charity, but also somebody who takes no nonsense. And he wants this story told. He wants people to know about the kinder transport and how that is relevant to the modern day and modern refugees from places like Sri Lanka. And as the film progresses, you also get to see that this is a traumatised man. He saw things in the war, he was unable to prevent things during the war. And he is affected by it but because he's a British person or an English person of a certain generation he never ever lets it show he has that stiff upper lip stoicism which you know is covering deep deep layers of trauma of what he did I mean he repeatedly says throughout the course of the film it's not enough what we are doing is not enough And yes, he may have rescued 669 children out of Prague, which is an extraordinary achievement given the bureaucracy and the times in which this happened. But he cannot get past the very last train, which was set to depart Prague on the day that Hitler invaded Poland and effectively the Second World War began. So yeah, that wasn't great, but yeah, it, he he can't help but think about everybody he didn't save rather than all the people he did. So that moment on That's Life where he sees, he physically sees and is in the presence of people who owe their life, literally owe their life to this one man and the assistance of Romola Garai and Alex Sharp, Uh, Doreen Warriner and Trevor Clark, I think the character's name was. Those were the real people who who did all this in Prague alongside Nicholas Winton. So, yeah, it's a story of trauma. It's a story of an ordinary man doing an extraordinary thing. It's a story of modesty. I mean, this person who didn't really want the attention, but got it. And thanks to his efforts, maybe we can understand better the traumas uh, and the issues surrounding immigrants. Uh, And yeah, it's... A film that does exactly what it sets out to do. It pulls all the right heartstrings. It tugs on all the right tear ducts. It knows exactly what it's doing, and it's very well performed. I mean, as you would expect from Anthony Hopkins, who apparently was the only choice for the Winton family to play their father, was Anthony Hopkins, and he read the scripts and agreed, so that was a relief. It does exactly what it says on the tin, basically. You know exactly the film you're going to get, and you get it. With an excellent performance from Anthony Hopkins, I'm not really sure it's to the level of an award-nominee-worthy performance, but it's an excellent performance from Anthony Hopkins, and a solid British movie of a very particular type. It should still be in cinemas by the time this podcast comes out, and One Life, for me is a rock-solid meh. Next up, we have one of the more anticipated films released cinematically in this Christmas and New Year period, the new Hayao Miyazaki film The Boy and the Heron, which comes out a decade after Hayao Miyazaki was supposed to have retired. This film is apparently inspired by a well-known Japanese book, How Do You Live? And that is the Japanese title of this film, although in the English-speaking world, it has been retitled The Boy and the Heron. And apparently it's also somewhat inspired by Hayao Miyazaki's own life.
1: And we start in
0: Japan during the war where a young boy, Mahito, witnesses his nurse mother dying in an incendiary bomb attack on his hometown, which naturally devastates him. This happens in the opening scene, and soon after that, young Mahito moves with his father to... A house in the country where Mojito's father has seemingly very quickly moved on and has not only married but impregnated Mojito's mother's younger sister. So, naturally, Mojito is a little wary of his new stepmother and the potential half sibling which is on the way and doesn't really feel comfortable, at least not initially, in this much more rural environment which he has been taken to. And he is also not particularly comfortable with the many, many old women who act as maids in this household. Exploring his new, more rural life, While his father is away in the factory which has been set up in the countryside, a factory which makes canopies for fighter jets, Mahito is more or less left to his own devices, and exploring the grounds finds a half-buried tower in the garden. A tower which he is quickly shooed off of by the Old lady maids, but his curiosity is piqued, and his curiosity is also piqued by a grey heron which repeatedly starts showing up and kind of starts harassing young Mahito and his family. And when one day his pregnant stepmother slash aunt disappears into the forest, Mahito is very afraid that something terrible has happened. So he follows his stepmother into the forest and to this tower, and accompanied by this grey heron who actually starts to talk to him, he enters a mystical other world, which seems to be some kind of afterlife slash multiverse slash something, which may or may not have something to do with the disappearance of his great-uncle many years ago, who, as one of the maids says, read too many books and lost his mind, and then disappeared probably into this tower which he constructed. So, can Mahito find his stepmother and rescue his stepmother and his unborn half-sibling? Will his businessman father even notice that his wife and son are disappearing? And what or who is this grey heron who can apparently
1: speak? I can't help feeling
0: that The Boy and the Heron is Hayao Miyazaki going over his greatest hits. There are so many facets of this film which are straight out of Miyazaki's previous film. I mean, we go to a world of the spirits, a world where logic and order doesn't make sense, very much like Spirited Away. The film is populated by old crone characters in these old maids, very much like Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away. It's a film where... The idea of embracing a more rural, a more simple way of life is demonstrated very much like My Neighbour Totoro. When workmen bring some of these airplane canopies to be inspected at the house because the factory is in danger of being bombed, so they bring these fighter plane canopies to this house, and the father shows them to Mahito and says, look at these airplane canopies, aren't they beautiful? So, you know, the beauty of aircraft, of airplanes, is very much here, like the wind rises. I mean, this is Miyazaki doing his stuff, perfecting his shtick and just showing it to us again. And There are great moments of beauty, great pieces of animation in this. I mean, particularly the opening scene where Mahito is running through the streets, which are on fire thanks to these incendiary bombs, trying desperately to get to the hospital where his mother is working. I mean, that sequence is breathtakingly executed. I mean, the fire effects, the motion blurring effects, it's really, really impressive stuff. It actually reminded me of the tale of the Princess Kaguya directed by Hayao Miyazaki's longtime collaborator and friend Isao Takahata. I mean, the animation in that sequence I thought was outstanding. And the animation throughout the entire course of this film is very, very beautiful. The typical wonder and magic and craft that you would expect from a Miyazaki from a Studio Ghibli film. It really is beautiful, sumptuous animation. I think there's, again, given Hayao Miyazaki's love of flight, this spirit world is largely populated by birds. There's heavy influence from pelicans, from parakeets, and of course from this grey heron. And yeah, all of that is done really well, and yeah, it, it, it's it's the kinds of things you expect from Miyazaki. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is actually a multiverse film as well. You know, come on with you know Doctor Strange and everything everywhere all at once from last year, I think you can put this in the same category of being a multiverse film, even though this other world seems to be some kind of afterlife or some kind of spirit world where the living and the dead exist where people come from different timelines as well there's lots of time loops and time dilations put in this and in this odd other world there are strange creatures as well i mean there's little things called warra, warra which serve the same purpose as the Soot Gremlins from My Neighbour Totoro and Spirited Away, the Susuwatari. But these Wara are little pudgy white things which skitter about. They kind of look like the adipose from Doctor Who, but they serve the same function as the Susu Watari, the Soot Gremlins from My Neighbour Totoro and spirited away once again Hayao Miyazaki going over his old things uh, and presenting his old uh, ideas to us once again but at the core of this film it is actually a family drama I mean this is essentially about a young boy accepting his new stepmother Aren't I mean, I think the weird family dynamic in this film is really, really not explored very well. I mean, very soon after your wife dies, you marry and impregnate her younger sister, and then move your family wholesale to the countryside. I mean, we really don't address that in this. But I, I do like the fact that Despite the fact we are not addressing the weird family dynamics, the stepmother does seem to genuinely care for her new stepson and goes out of her way to protect and to comfort him. I mean, obviously, he's not accepting this help at the beginning, and gradually over the course of the film, they get closer. And again, there should be some kind of discussion about the weird family dynamics, but young Mojito does eventually accept his new stepmother, and we don't have kind of the evil stepmother trope. I mean, as soon as I realised what the dynamic was, I thought, oh, it's going to be the evil stepmother trope, isn't it? She's going to completely dismiss and I know Cinderella eyes her new stepson but no she genuinely cares she's genuinely concerned she genuinely goes out of her way to protect and to help her stepson so that's nice i mean so it's a close family relationship even though it's weird and it's not being addressed but yeah the boy and the heron is everything you would expect i mean it's got a lot of hayao miyazaki's tropes a lot of his proclivities it's sumptuously animated there's occasionally some rather profound things that get said albeit in a a rather simplistic maybe even trite way but they're important things nonetheless i mean it's about grief it's about family dynamics it's about moving on and the necessity to understand the need to move on and not just carry on as if nothing had happened but address these things and it's about bravery i mean despite his legitimate ambivalence about his stepmother young mojito does go to this dangerous other world in order to find her in order to rescue her or whether or not she needs rescuing i mean he needs to know what's happened to her and if she needs rescuing, he will do it. And yeah, it's it's really beautiful and it's everything you would expect. I personally don't think this reaches to the heights of Hayao Miyazaki's output. I think Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away are still... Unsurpassed as far as Hayao Miyazaki's work goes. I mean, honestly, my favourite Studio Ghibli film is Isao Takahata's *The Tale of the Princess Kaguya*. I think that's a stunning piece of work. But as far as Miyazaki's output goes, it's still *Spirited Away* and *Princess Mononoke* for me. And this doesn't. Reach those levels, but it is a very, very beautiful, very, very impressive film. So, yes, I do think this is one of the best animated films of the year. I'm not sure it's actually going to make my personal list, but it's certainly going to be in the running. And I did really, really like it. So, for me, The Boy and the Heron, which again probably will still be in cinemas by the time this podcast comes out, is a yay. And finally for this episode, the big blockbuster released over the Christmas period was Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. The latest and apparently last film in the current DCEU continuity. I think they are rebooting the whole thing with James Gunn at the head, which is not a bad idea on paper, but let's see how it works. But yes, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is directed by James Wan, who created the Saw franchise, created the Conjuring franchise, worked on the Fast and Furious franchise, and has now worked on the DCEU franchise, having directed both Aquaman and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, which once again stars Jason Momoa as Aquaman, who is. The King of Atlantis, but splits his time between the boring politics under the sea and family life on the surface, with him and his wife-slash-partner. I'm not exactly sure of their marital status, and honestly it doesn't matter, but Aquaman and Mera have a baby together, and they're living on land with... Jason Momoa's father's lighthouse, Jason Momoa's father once again being played by Tamura Morrison, and occasionally getting visited by Jason Momoa's mother, Nicole Kidman, who is also involved in the politics of Atlantis. But a new threat is looming, because there is a climate catastrophe in Existence on the surface. I mean, yes, we know global warming and all that stuff, but in the last couple of months, there's been so much more activity than there should have been. I mean, the global warming has accelerated at an alarming degree. And it might well be related to Black Manta, played by Yaya Abdul Mateen II, who is still hell-bent on vengeance after Jason Momoa killed his father in the first film, and nothing will stand in the way of his vengeance. And now he has this artefact, the Black Trident, which is probably taking over his mind, and is directly related to these climate catastrophes which are affecting both the surface world and the undersea world. And seem designed to uncover the Lost Kingdom, one of the missing tribes of Atlantis, who has passed into legend, but maybe they're actually real, and maybe this black trident in the hands of Black Manta and his reluctant scientist sidekick Randall Park, maybe they're trying to be reborn, and this has something to do with the disastrous climate catastrophes. so the only way to prevent black manta and his evil machinations to resurrect this lost kingdom is to reunite jason momoa with his half-brother patrick wilson who was actively trying to kill him in the first aquaman movie and has been locked in a prison in the desert, which for an Atlantean is a big deal, ever since. But now Jason Momoa to break him out of this desert jail where his jailers are Atlanteans who live in the desert and apparently instead of using water use blood. How the hell does that work? I mean, I'm not sure if that's from the comics or not, but either way, it's stupid But anyway, he breaks him out of the desert prison, chases down Black Manta to the Arctic Circle, and tries to prevent the Lost Kingdom from resurrecting, and also tries to prevent the global climate catastrophe. And I am so sick of this shit. I mean, long ago I've... Had fatigue about all these superhero movies and superhero franchises and trying to keep on top of them all, and it just doesn't matter anymore. This film goes along every single rail you expect. Exposition, when it is needed, is dumped so inelegantly into dialogue, it just sits there and stares at you it's so thuddingly obvious the plot line is so thuddingly obvious you're reconciling the estranged brothers the antagonist who is hell-bent on revenge and will stop at nothing to kill the man who killed his father and that includes aligning himself with this black trident and this lost kingdom which is slowly taking over his mind I mean even other tropes get reused I mean there's a character in this who is 100% Jabba the Hutt serves exactly the same purpose looks pretty much the same albeit he's underwater rather than on land but That's the kind of thing that happens. And the character of Aquaman, Jason Momoa, is very, very engaging. I mean, he's got this terminal irreverence, this goofy attitude that is fun. And he was the highlight, or one of the highlights of the Justice League movies. But for an entire movie, that kind of goofy irreverence gets really really grating after a while i mean when our protagonist really really doesn't care about atlantis he repeatedly says i can't do anything there's all this politics and I, i want to do the politics so when the character is bored with atlantis why should we as an audience be interested in atlantis i mean i admit that this was at the end of a very very long day but I literally fell asleep during one of the battle sequences in this film Aquaman. Yes, I was very tired, but this film didn't engage me enough to keep me awake. So, yeah, one of the battle scenes when Black Manta's forces invade Atlantis, I seem to have missed most of it because I was asleep, and honestly, I don't think I missed much, because I can pretty much imagine exactly the kind of thing that would have happened and yeah i mean there's nothing new there's nothing original this film goes down every single rail you ever thought of it's not trying very hard i mean i'm so glad that this is apparently the last of this dceu continuity i hope that james gunn does something interesting and something new and something different with it but if this is the kind of film that the DCEU is providing us nowadays, it should die. There's just nothing here. Yes, Jason Momoa is very engaging, very funny, but over a whole movie, it's so annoying. The exposition is so lazy. The characterization is so lazy, so basic. The message of this film is very, very basic. I mean, the literal plan of the villain is to destroy the environment. And shoehorning this environmentalist message into the film is. Yeah, I I suppose it's necessary. The more people see and people say, look, the climate is absolutely fucked. The more people see that and understand that, the better but the title of this movie is revealed to us as an ice shelf falls off the Arctic ice, and underneath we have Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. I oh, was speaking of the Lost Kingdom, I mean, the Lost Kingdom of the title is this lost tribe of Atlanteans, but there is a sequence where Jason Momoa and Patrick Wilson are on an island, which is kind of like the Lost Kingdom, you know, the, the classic... Old, um, what was it Doyle? I think Arthur Conan Doyle did that, but there's a sequence where Jason Mamar and Patrick Wilson are running through the jungle and being chased by man sized beetles and bees, you know, bees the size of helicopters, basically. So, yeah, I mean, that was kind of cool, but yeah, you know, a kind of a lot of pixels smashing into each other, uh, and that's all that this provides for us nowadays. I mean. I am I I have reached my breaking point with this. I am curious with some of the stuff. I mean, Madame Web is coming out in a few weeks and that looks really, really weird. So I'm curious about that. And I probably will still watch most of these, if not all of these superhero movies, but I'm getting so, so tired of it. And this particular one really does have nothing to recommend it. It's lazy, it's ordinary, occasionally it's annoying. There's just nothing here, so yeah, I'm sick and tired of this whole thing. And for me, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom was a nay. New releases. It's actually pretty quiet at the cinema this coming week because For some reason this year the schedules seem to have crowned all the Oscar-baity films in before the turn of the year and there's not actually a great deal left and there's very little else being released. So there's only two cinematic films that are on the slate for next week, both of which have Oscar potential. One of them is probably going to win Oscars. And that's Yorgos Lanthimos's new film, Poor Things, which is the favourite to win Best Actress for Emma Stone and at least get nominations for Lanthimos as director, Best Picture, probably Mark Ruffalo for Best Supporting Actor, maybe even Willem Dafoe for Best Supporting Actor. Maybe uh, the screenwriter who isn't Lanthimos, it's somebody else. But yeah, it's... A pretty heavyweight contender is Poor Things, which follows a woman, Emma Stone, who has been made artificially by William Dafoe. She is kind of a Frankenstein-like, or Frankenstein's monster-like creation, but wants to explore the world, so is accompanied by a journalist, played by Mark Ruffalo, on a journey of exploration seeing what life and humanity and all that kind of stuff is. Judging by the trailer, it's got Lanthimos' typical surrealism, and there's a little bit of artificiality about the whole thing as well, a very constructed kind of approach. But yeah, Poor Things looks really, really cool, and I am very keen to see it, and that is out cinematically this week. As is The Boys in the Boat which is one of those films which is angling itself to be an awards contender but almost certainly won't actually get any award nominations. It is directed by George Clooney and is a biopic of the Men's 8 Rowing Team which won the gold medal for the United States at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Which might sound like a pretty tame thing to make a film about, but it's based on a best selling non fiction book and it's got lots and lots of themes in it. Because the boys in the boat were the University of Washington rowing team who won the national championships in an Olympic year and therefore went to the Olympics over the richer universities on the East Coast, you know, the Ivy League. Schools who usually sent their boats to the olympics and some major championships and these were all working class boys from the pacific northwest who needed to row because they needed money this was the depression in america so these working class boys became champion rowers because they needed to be champion rowers and They beat the fancy East Coast expensive schools and they beat the Nazis. So, yeah, there's plenty of stuff interesting about the boys in the boat, but it's almost certainly not going to get any Oscar nominations, but it is angling itself as a contender. So I do want to check it out. And that's basically it as far as the cinematic releases go next week. So... Yes, that's just as well, so I can continue trying to do my video work on my YouTube channel. And also, I'm now overdue to start seriously working on my best of the year shows as well. So, lack of cinematic trips will certainly help with that. But, there is also some streaming things to run up the flagpole. Even though, again, pretty light this week. The major release on general VOD platforms is the new film from Kelly Reichardt. And it's surprising that a film by Kelly Reichardt is only getting a streaming release here in the UK, but that seems to be the case. I mean, she is the excellent director behind films like First Cow and Night Moves and Certain Women. So, yeah, a... a major figure or one of the major figures in american indie cinema and yet her film only gets a streaming release despite the fact it stars michelle williams and hong chow michelle williams playing an artist who is dealing with self-doubt in the run-up to a major show i think hong chow plays her agent or something but yes anyway michelle williams has worked with kelly reichardt a lot And once again, she is in the new film. And I love Michelle Williams. I love Hong Chow. I'm something of a fan of Kelly Reichardt. I mean, I don't love her as much as some critics out there. But yes, showing up is definitely one to look out for. And it is being released onto streaming platforms this week. And released onto Amazon Prime this week is... Another entry in a genre which seems to have had an awful lot of examples over the last couple of years, the action comedy genre of I am an ordinary person and the person I am living with slash dating slash wanting to date is actually an international spy slash assassin slash agent slash whatever. And yeah, that's... Has been an awful lot of films recently, and this latest one, Roleplay, stars Kaylee Cuoco and David Ayelowo as a married couple who are something in a rut. They have a couple of kids, but it turns out that Kaylee Cuoco, despite looking like a typical suburban soccer mom, is actually an international assassin. Working, I think, for Bill Nye well, Bill Nighy's certainly in it, so I think he might play Katie Kwiatkow's boss. And when David Yellowo accidentally finds out that his wife is a killer for hire, things get hectic and action-comedy-centred and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, I mean, it is a genre that works. Actually, we're getting something kind of similar in a couple of weeks cinematically with Matthew Vaughan's new film Argyle. but. Yes, this one, role play starring Katie Quaker and David Yalamo, is coming on Amazon Prime this week. So, yeah, that is added to the list, but I'll maybe get to it when I've got through my mountain of stuff that I need to watch before my Oscar deliberations. Uh, and that is an extensive list, which I'll be talking about. Actually, I won't be talking about all this in this episode, but yeah. And one thing I do want to mention, but it doesn't look like I'm going to have the opportunity to, to watch it, supposedly being released cinematically this week, but it doesn't look like it's coming anywhere near me, is a documentary called "The Disappearance of Share Height." Now Share Height in the early '80s was a sex researcher whose book The Height Report was a gigantic bestseller and is credited somewhat with demystifying the female orgasm. And actually being a woman and being that open about sexuality in the early 80s, she suffered from severe amounts of backlash and basically disappeared from public life hence The Disappearance of Cher Height, And this is a documentary dealing with her, her legacy, and the awful treatment that the misogynist press and the misogynist America generally in the early 80s had with her and her very, very successful book. So yeah, that does look fascinating and I do want to watch it at some point, but it doesn't look like I will be able to watch it cinematically this week, even though It is announced as being released cinematically this week. So, the next cinematic episode, which honestly, I have no idea when that's going to be coming because I've got a lengthy streaming episode that I've already mostly finished and it's going to be hopefully released quite quickly after this one. But my next cinematic episode will be reviewing only two films, probably The Boys in the Boat and Poor Things.
1: The
0: to watch list. So, as I've been saying over the course of this episode, I already have a lengthy streaming episode mostly finished and almost ready to go. But despite that, my list of films I need to get to is incredibly long because I still have many, many films to get through which have some level of Oscar buzz surrounding them. I think my to-watch list currently stands at somewhere like 18 or 19 films, just based on the films I need to see before the Oscars. But I'm not going to go through all of them, because I've realised that there is a niche subset of films which can fill up an episode in and of itself because there are so many films on the animated feature Oscar list, the list of 33 eligible films according to Ampass, I have access to many of them, and five of them are because they're on Netflix. So I think after I finished the streaming episode of Already Got Mostly Done, i'm actually just going to watch those five netflix animated films which are on the eligible features list and that list of five films that are on the animated feature list and are available on netflix is as follows we have chicken run dawn of the nugget which is probably the highest profile animated film on netflix released recently or certainly the one which i think has the best chance of actually getting an oscar nomination the long awaited sequel to chicken run well actually was anybody waiting for a sequel to chicken run but they decided to do one you know 20 odd years later with the same stop motion animation from the beloved ardman studios and yes that latest one is available on netflix so yes i definitely want to check out chicken run dawn of the nugget There's also Leo which I initially dismissed because it sounded really really stupid but the buzz surrounding it has been remarkably positive which surprises me because this is one of Adam Sandler's films. It's an animated film with Adam Sandler as the voice of a lizard. A lizard who has spent his entire life in an elementary school classroom in Florida I think seeing class after class go through this classroom he's lived a very very long time but then realizes that he is probably coming towards the end of his life and wants to experience the world and since for some reason which i can't quite explain but it looks like judging by the trailer he can talk an iguana lizard in a classroom that can talk he starts talking to the kids and improving their lives and all that kind of stuff uh, and experiencing the world for himself. So yeah, that sounds rather strange, but the buzz surrounding it is pretty good. So I will be checking out Leo, particularly since it is on the eligible features list at the Oscars, as is The Magician's Elephant, which was released right at the beginning of 2023, but I never got around to it, despite the fact it's been on my list for all that time. But yes, this is another animated feature based, I think, on a children's book. Where an orphan is sent on a quest by a fortune teller to find an elephant which will help him find his lost sister, or something along those lines, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, it never really appeal to me all that much but it is on the list so i will check out the magician's elephant also listed as eligible for the oscars is a film called miraculous ladybug and cat noir the movie now ladybug and cat noir is a long-running french kids tv show an animated tv show and i believe that all of the episodes are available on Netflix, or lots of them are available on Netflix, and they actually made a movie, and it is listed as being eligible for the animated feature Oscar. So, yes, I'm actually curious about this because I've seen Ladybug and Cat Noir, the characters. I've seen them, you know, in toy shops, even you know, in the windows of the toy shop. So, yeah, they seem to have had a pretty big cultural impact. But obviously, I'm way, way too old to be that interested in it but i want to see what all the fuss is about because it seems to have a lot of popularity so yes let's see what i think of a movie version of this french animated kids show ladybug and cat noir and also finally on the animated netflix feature list is the monkey king a new version of the old Journey to the West epic. Would you call it a novel or not? I don't know. But yeah, you know, it's The Monkey King, basically the same story that that 70s Japanese show Monkey was based on. But this seems to be a, a slightly more serious version of it. But it's a Chinese animated film. I believe Jackie Chan is involved in the production of it. Which, and I think he was also involved in the production of Wish Dragon a couple of years ago, which was actually really good. So yes, The Monkey King, a new take on the old Monkey King legend. And they made an animated film of it, and it's on Netflix. So yes, those five animated features on Netflix, I think I will split off into its own separate special podcast. And once I've finished this episode, once I've finished the streaming episode I've got in production, once I've dealt with all the copyright protections on my YouTube channel, that is the next thing I will be focusing on, is the animated features on Netflix. So yes, at some point, that special episode will be released. The Ace Despite this episode having mostly an Oscar-baity type feel, there is only one film which I feel deserves an outright yay. And that is the new Studio Ghibli film, The Boy and the Heron, which has everything that you expect from Studio Ghibli and particularly from Hayao Miyazaki. It really does feel like his greatest hits compilation, with all the themes and ideas that are presented here. But it's none the worse for that. I mean, there's a reason why Hayao Miyazaki has such name recognition because these tropes work and they work exceptionally well in this film, The Boy and the Heron. The animation is sumptuous. The ideas, the philosophy are beautiful, yet digestible to a mixed audience. It's got intrigue, it's got drama. There's a couple of disgusting and a couple of gross moments. I mean, there's sequences where this grey heron has teeth in its beak, which is just really disturbing. And I think it works. I mean, I saw the subtitled version, but now I've had a quick look at the English dub voice cast. I might actually try and check out the English dub as well, since I can get in with my Odeon Limitless card. I think I might check out the English dub as well, see what that's like as well. But however you see it, I think The Boy and the Heron is exactly what you expect from Studio Ghibli. It's guaranteed to get a nomination at the Oscars, but honestly, I don't think anything is beating Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse this year. Or now, hang on. Is Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse? Well, well, the Spider-Verse movie that was out this year. I think that's the only thing that's winning the animated feature Oscar. But personally speaking, I think the peasants should win, but that's almost certainly not even going to get nominated. But anyway, this is a beautiful, sumptuous, impressive film. It is exactly what it sets out to be, if this is the epitaph for Hayao Miyazaki, and since he's already retired ten years ago, this is probably going to be his last film, and I think it will be a suitable epitaph, and for me, The Boy and the Heron, aka How Do You Live, is a definite yay. So after this lengthy cinematic episode, we have a lengthy streaming episode which is almost ready to release as well. Because over the Christmas and New Year period, as well as watching lots of films at the cinema, I also managed to fit in a lot of streaming films as well. Most of them Oscar-baity as well. There's so many films I need to watch for my Oscar deliberations. But there's going to be at least six films in this streaming episode which is mostly done and will hopefully be released not too long after this one is released. So, yes, look out for a streaming special episode released soon and also do check out my YouTube channel where hopefully I will have some charmed TV reactions as well as some movie reactions. I mean, the copyright protections on cbs for charmed are just ridiculous months after they've been cleared suddenly they get blocked it's really frustrating but yeah that's been most of my time over the last couple of weeks is re-editing and re-uploading and re-editing and re-uploading charmed videos but i will not be defeated cbs will not best me i will get those videos on my youtube channel but yeah, I'm starting to sound a bit crazy now, aren't I? But anyway, that brings me to the end of this particular audio podcast. And all that remains for me to say is this has been the Yay, Nay or May podcast. I've been your host, Connie Gazeley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is yaynayormare at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter slash X. YouTube, and TikTok at yay, nay, or meh. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.